welcome to the Birdfly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. Uh, this is Wade here in the studio on Palm Sunday, joined by Peter and Mike. And we are going to be talking a little bit today about the commodification of people, and we will unpack that more when we get to it. Um, just some of the preliminaries out of the gate. We are part of the 1517 Podcasting Network. Encourage you to check that out at 1517.org. Is that right, Peter? That's right. And a uh, number of podcasts that you can check out there. I'd look uh, it up right now, but the Wi-Fi is down at school, down, so I yeah. can't check to make sure. But Yeah, the power sure. had gone out earlier, which is back on, thankfully. But um, just a note with that, the hero Why did someone start a fire in a barrel out in the hallway, though? I mean, just the Wi-Fi is down. This is <laughs> not... It's like Mad Men. Um, the Here We Still Stand conference is coming up in October. Um, Mike and I will be live recording at that, and I will be presenting a uh, sectional for that. There are less than 100 tickets left. Uh, tickets are $199, but you can use the code PNET19. Um, to get $25 off if you want to register at herewestillstand.org. So I encourage you to maybe think about checking that out if you're in the area. What's the code again? P, P as in Paul, net. N-E-T. Is that right? You just messed, I just deleted the I email. Know, so, so whatever I said was right. <laughs> um, encourage you to check that out, though, if you're in the area or you're looking for a nice destination conference. It is in sunny San Diego, and we very much enjoyed our time out there last year. Um Otherwise, we're going to be getting into our free-for-all in the moment. The baseball season is underway. Um, all of our teams are starting uh, pretty good or better than expected out of the gate, so we'll be discussing that. Um, and in the meanwhile, anything else you gentlemen have before we get to the disclaimer? All right, who wants to give us a disclaimer? Peter, you want to do that? This show doesn't speak for our churches, our church bodies, or employers. To be honest, much of the time it probably doesn't speak for us. We'll be thinking out loud a lot, so approach what you hear with a healthy skepticism. Because, well, as a responsible resident of planet Earth, that's probably what you should generally do with almost everything. If you find yourself getting too worked up, tune out, look around, and realize you are just listening to a podcast. That's right, a podcast. So go live freely, friends, and don't let us get in the way. And we're back, and we're going to talk about the baseball season. We're probably only a few weeks into the baseball season. Mike, what are you season. doing right now? I'm Not watching probably. baseball, we, we are actually. Only a few weeks in. Uh, probably what we shouldn't do, though, is uh, make big sweeping um, decisions about teams. You're not supposed to do that until after Memorial Tigers Day. Are going to the World then you ju- then absolutely after Memorial Day you're allowed to. That's the moment. Huh? That is the moment. Um, so we're just we didn't do a preview this year. Um, so you're let the bird fly baseball. I think we did. We did a, yeah, you just were here. All right. Yeah. Well, this is, <laughs> so we're just going to do <laughs> baseball every two weeks or what? Well, All mean, right. Our teams are doing well. We got to <laughs> seize the so day. You Peter, know. Peter is a Brewers fan. They started off really hot, uh, took three or four from the Cardinals in the opening series and then, um, cooled off just a little bit, but have won two against the Dodgers. Right. Yep. They're playing, um, playing today as we record. Yeah. Uh, the Cardinals, uh, lost three or four to the Brewers in close games and uh, then turned it on a little bit and swept the poor Dodgers. 
who were really, really hot, but now have uh, cooled off a little bit just in time to play the Cardinals and the Brewers. And then the Tigers are, what's their record now? They're 8-6, like, and six, but losing to the Twins right now. 8-6, and six, which um, in kind of rebuild mode is not a bad deal. Not at all. You like your new manager? I've been happy with him. Yeah, this is his second year now, and he seems to be uh, handling the team well, and they, they're kind of making him do the whole... Uh, Garden hire, right? Yeah, they're making him do the whole shift, you know, do the uh, analytics type stuff. But uh, I thought this was a good topic to talk about because they're losing to the Twins right now, which could put them in 8-7. and seven. So this might be the last time for a while I'll get to talk about them being above 500. <laughs> well, and the uh, Twins are top of your division, right? They Although are. Although it looks like they've missed a few the games. The Tigers are a half game out, so they'll be a game and a half out if they lose today. They're down 6-2, so they probably will lose. Um, but the pitching overall has been really good. They just need the bats to come alive. I, I don't think Cabrera is going to bat in the 100s for the whole year. No, um, and it's funny, especially for these uh, Midwest teams besides the Brewers who play in a dorm, uh, a dorm, <laughs> a dome. Um, it's hard to the pitching is always better because it's hard to hit in the in the cold weather. So it's kind of hard to always tell. Um, I'm happy about that because Cardinals pitching has been their problem right now. So maybe the warm weather and a few um, recoveries from injury. Um, will match their bats, which have been good. What is, besides Christian Yelich, what have you been excited about for the Brewers, Peter? Well, the hot start was really nice, but I did I, I did wonder if it was going to last. And when they got swept by the uh, the Angels, I felt like, well, if they're going to get swept by, by someone, that's probably the, the team to, to, to go to rather than the Dodgers or the Cardinals who, Cardinals, who they will play next. My hope is that they're getting hot again. They sweep the, the Dodgers here, and then they go in and sweep the Cardinals, and they go up 7-1 to one on the season with the Cardinals, I mean, then they can just kind of coast as, mm-hmm. when they're playing the Cardinals the rest of the year. What is it, 16 games uh, against divisional? I don't know if 16 something. or 18, something like something that. Something like that. Yeah. So they'd be, in, they'd be in nice uh, and they have a good position there. All right, so uh, you're happy with this season of your team if. So, Wade, you're happy if the Tigers do what? I think if they win more than 70 games, it's a, <laughs> it's a, it's a good year. But I, I think they're – I mean the, – More than 10% there? The division just looks not good this year, so – I really think there's a, a realistic chance if they can win uh, the games that are kind of giving them the opportunity to win that they could end up a second or third How in about the this? AL Central. Interesting baseball in August would be a good. I would say the Tigers, um, if they're over 500 in August, have a chance to finish over 500. With uh, the farm system kind of being built up here, I think that'd be exciting for a Tigers fan. All right, I'm I'm disappointed if the Cardinals do not at least make the playoffs. Um, even then, I'd be a little bit because they spent the money, and uh, they really don't have any excuse. It's it's a tough division this year. I this mean, that's the flip tough. side: is the Tigers are in an easy division. <coughs> Your guys is uh, it's just brutal. Yeah, even even the Cubs are not going to stay this cold forever. No, the Cubs the Cubs are bringing up the bottom, and the Pittsburgh is is in second right now, or tied for second. Um, and yeah, who saw that coming, right? For the long time, the Cardinals just assumed, okay, that the Cubs will be terrible. Uh, Pittsburgh will flake out and the Brewers will lose their pitching about August 2nd. (laughs) And, uh, but that hasn't been the case lately. So it's uh, reality for the Cardinals. Yeah, no, I I mean, we're in the same division, but I got to say for the Brewers, I'll be disappointed if they don't make the playoffs too. And I I think I said 90 games was what I was right around 90 is what I was expecting for wins. And knowing that this is going to be a tough division, it's shaping up to be just that. So I'm glad they got off to a hot start. Baseball streaky. We're only in April. NBA, by the way, uh, Bucks. They gonna make it to the finals? What do we think? Uh, conference finals for sure, of course. If they can beat Toronto, yeah. I think they make the finals. Pistons made the playoffs with a losing record, and I predict they 
get uh, thumped in the first round. That's a good prediction. I wouldn't be surprised if the Pistons actually pulled out one or two games just because I think they match up good with the Bucks and, you know. It'll be interesting to see. But there's no way they're going to the second round. No. no. Hey, I have, I have big news. I think I have Wi-Fi again. Nice. Excellent. Um, but with that, I know not everybody's a sports fan, so we can probably make our way to the main topic. It's just something I was thinking about ethics we use for the bioethics section. Um, bioethics, a primer for Christians by Gilbert Mylander. And Peter, as he has wanted to do, was kind of a bagging on my choice of books for classes. Um, he taught ethics for a while here as well and used to pick on the other one I had. And I'm kind of glad that one I'm not using anymore. It was kind of to get started. Um, but I, on the whole, usually tend to uh, enjoy Mylander, his bioethics, and then uh what is it? Faith and Faithfulness is his other book, I believe. And it's definitely intended just to be a primer to get students talking about bioethical issues. And we're not going to be talking about bioethics today, but one of the things he brings out at the beginning of his chapter two, um, procreation versus reproduction, is the difference in emphasis when we use those two terms, um, procreation and reproduction. And we don't have to get into the beginning of life issues here because this isn't going to be a bioethics episode, but it got me thinking, I think an interesting thing to think through is uh, if we think of, right, procreation, you have that word creation in there, you recognize um, that God is working through means, through the couple to produce a child, and then we love that child um, as a creation of God. Um, That word reproduction kind of has like an industrial revolution type feel to it. The word that you see in there is product, right? And so the chapters coming after that will look at genetic advance, prenatal screening, things of that sort. But the emphasis can be kind of this consumer mentality of the couple um, is reproducing. You're getting a product, which is a child. And then we see in our day, uh, you know, already to a, a good extent so far, um, questions about, well, if it is reproduction, if you are producing a child, and we won't get into surrogacy or in vitro, stuff like that, but the child as product, well, what do you want your child to be? And so you have prenatal screening. Um, maybe the child isn't what you want that child to be. And we've seen, for instance, Iceland kind of boasting of getting rid of Down syndrome when we really know they haven't got rid of Down syndrome. They've gotten rid of Down syndrome children, right? They haven't treated the, the problem. Um, but questions then, you know, what kind of eye color do you want for your child? Um Do you want your child to be more than human, more than the creation that it is? And that will maybe be another episode we can do down the road. But that got me thinking, um, that idea of product in there, and just with the commodification of human beings in general, um, kind of building off our three-part series we did as Law and Gospel as Lens for Life, I think we do see in our own age, um, and really post-Industrial Revolution, uh, this... uh, temptation to commodify people um, through social media. We're kind of tempted to market ourselves. Um, 
I'm rereading David Foster Wallace's uh, Infinite Jest, which is a, you know, like a 1,200-page novel with a bunch of footnotes. But he has a great section in there where he talks about he kind of foresees the invention of what we have on iPhones, FaceTime, but of video calls. And he talks about how they invented these video calls and then people wanted to go back just to voice calls, partly because they realized when I'm on a voice call, I can be doing all sorts of other things and you can't tell I'm distracted. But then also with the video calls, uh, supposedly the consumers were worried about what they look like. Do I have to do my makeup? Um, and then companies start, entrepreneurs start making masks that you can wear so you look your best on the video call. Um, people didn't like being able to see themselves, so felt bad about themselves. And then the masks weren't enough. You wanted your whole body as the resolutions improved on these video calls. And so you could have kind of like these flat boards, you know, where you'd go to a fair and stick your head through something. <laughs> um, and then people felt nervous going outside because they didn't look like they looked on their video calls. Um, and so we see that beyond just aesthetics, this desire to uh, to market ourselves. I think we see in education, we've seen a big push, especially since the 90s, I would say, um, where corporations are telling schools what they want. And then schools have really, um, from grade school up, but especially I would say beginning in high school too, reshuffled their curriculum to produce employable people. Um, high schools and colleges market themselves by their ability to produce employable people. And so many of these shifts have gone towards um, maybe professional skills, um, becoming what the the market's going to want when you get out. And what kind of has gotten left in the wake often is classes that teach you to think, to be a critical thinker, um, classes that teach you to be a responsible citizen. It's sometimes disheartening when I ask my students how many of them had a civics class in high school, and those numbers seem to keep <clears throat> going down. The ability to write well, to express yourself well, um, to communicate well, to sit down with the text and not have a worksheet that tells you, here's five things you should find in this, but actually to have to wrestle with it, to empathize with the author, to be able to connect to another person. And so in many ways, we, we see we're, we're putting out students, um, even now from grade school on, who are supposed to have a skill set that matches what the big corporations are going to want. Um, you know, we look 20 years ahead. Maybe you remember in high school having to take one of those tests about what your career should be. I don't remember what mine was. <laughs> I, I probably would, I'm guessing it, I didn't match up well with anything, which is why I'm glad I found a niche here in the humanities. But uh, I guess the increasing temptation to see people somewhat as products, I think this has led to some of the growing anxiety in our own age. Um, we see with the development of artificial intelligence, um, it's likely that a lot of the jobs people are hoping to go into now just aren't going to be around in 20 years. Um, you know, uh, one of the candidates I'm kind of interested in for president, and I'm not endorsing him, but he did a really good interview with Joe Rogan, and then he had one with Ben Shapiro as Andrew Yang. Um, he's running as a Democrat, but he talks about the universal basic income. But he, he's really good at talking about, you know, you'll have people, and he uses truck drivers a lot, who will be out of work, and the answer isn't necessarily, as you see people comment on Twitter all the time, learn to code. Um, it's not as though my truck driver father would have been able to, before he retired, just go back and, and suddenly learn to code. Um, but many of these jobs that may not be around 
Um, well, what happens then when you have a society where you've largely commodified people and now they have to, you know, we might have to wrestle with what is the point of work? What is the value of work as work changes? I mean, we really could be looking in 20, 30, 40, 50 years at an economy where a lot of stuff is uh, automized and uh, we're largely just a consumer culture, right? We're here just to consume. And are we prepared for that? What does that say about me? What is my value? Um, this, along these lines comes up, you know, in America, a lot of times you meet someone and one of the questions we like to ask is, well, what do you do? And I always hate that question and usually I'm sarcastic and I say, well, I eat, sleep, and I walk around sometimes. And, but we really see ourselves through the lens of our employability or, or work. And so I think, you know, this might be an episode that can go a bunch of different ways, but it is interesting to me um, to use that as a springboard, the idea of, uh, of people as um, creations of God who are, um, in the Christian sense, free. Uh, in the Western sense, uh, we think of bills of rights and things like this, free. Um, what does that mean, and in, in, in what should we be striving to prepare or to be as people, um, as free people, as thinking people, as people who can connect. Um, if we're going to let the bird fly and live freely in a world given back to us, um, what are the implications of that? What does that mean for who I am, where my value is, and how I, uh, how I live with others? So Mylander in that chapter gets onto a bunch of stuff, and later chapters he'll get into, you know, um, what if the day could come since the birth is a choice? Um, if you produce a product and the product's not what it wanted to be, can your child sue you for wrongful birth. Um, can you sue the, the doctor for your child's not the child you wanted it to be? And so I think it gets into questions of neighbor too. How do I relate to my neighbor? How do I value my neighbor? But I just think it's an interesting question to weigh as a whole. Um, and maybe you guys you guys can think I'm completely wrong, but I do see a, a growing commodification of the individual um, I think you see some pushback against that in a lot of political movements kind of across the, the world spectrum. Um, people who are uncomfortable with the way things are going, um, the rise of the far right and the far left probably um, have similar concerns in this regard. But, uh, you know, if we are a free people in the Christian sense, if we are a free people in kind of the Western liberal sense, not liberal like liberal conservative, but liberal like free, right? Like we have bills of rights. We think we have human rights. We think individuals have some um, in essential intrinsic value that we say in America, we hold this to be inalienable. Um, how should we be educating people? What does it mean to educate someone in accord with their inherent value and, and not simply according to how they can be plugged into the Borg? Um, What's my value if, uh, you know, one of the things Yang mentions is apparently in the medical field, some people are nervous with radiology, for instance, that uh, AI can see grays better than human beings can see grays. Um, China, I believe it was, recently had a, a machine do brain surgery just as well as a brain surgeon can do. And, you know, that's a big one because people see surgeons as the top of the food chain, and surely you couldn't replace that. <laughs> um, how do we ground human value? What is... Any, any, I don't want to keep repeating that, but I'll, I'll throw that to you guys. Anything that maybe comes, to, and I'll admit I did not prepare Mike and Peter pretty well for the, very well for this. 
Um, I just gave him the Mylander chapter and then basically said, most of it has nothing to do with what I want to talk about. But any thoughts that come to mind? Uh, Peter, how about I throw it to you first, because I know this maybe gets at some of your own libertarian interests, but I think if we think philosophically too, um, the autonomy of the individual, human value, these are big questions in philosophy. Um, you did a lot with Bacon, scientific advancement. How does that relate to the individual? Um, anything that comes to mind? Yeah, so <clears throat> start off with, I, I will say that the, the focus on the individual, I think, goes against the commodification, um, at least the way that I understand us kind of un, uh, viewing people as a commodity. And what I mean by that is that we group people together. So even even with something like a small little podcast like ours, we say, well, what's our target audience? And we understand now that we have access to a lot of a lot of a, a, a in, incomprehensible amount of people through the internet, just to be able to put this out there. But we don't need all of those people to listen to our podcast. We just, you know, looking for those that are interested. It's this very small amount. But even in that way, we're grouping them together right. and, we, and the individual kind of is dissolved, right? That we're, we're like, we're looking for, even though it's a really small group in our case, right? It's, it's this group versus this individual. And so one well, of... Balance that out too with hyper-individualism when you're done with your point. I mean, what's what's the... We also talk about the problem of hyper-individualism. So oh, okay. when you're done with your point, yeah. back, I back do like, I do like and, where yeah. you're going. Though. Yeah. Yeah. No, and so the idea that the, I mean, the individual, when I think about it, my political philosophy, that becomes really important. Uh, individual needs to be respected. And I'm speaking now in a, in a civic sense, right? I mean, so my right. political philosophy. Although there is a very Lutheran thing too, right? There is, individual yeah. Standing but I'm God. seeing, yep. but I, but I want to keep those two separate yep. because, because those, my view of the individual, um, politically speaking, and, and I, when I say politically, don't think like Republican, Democrat, le right, left, think political science, right? Yep. Political philosophy. When I'm thinking politically, the individual is like, that kind of becomes the, the touchstone for everything. Whereas um, in, in the ecclesial realm or in the, in the, in the church in my in my theology the individual is extremely important but that's because god says so right and that's right. because god creates adam and god creates eve and god gives to adam and eve and all of their offspring the savior right so the individual becomes really important for that reason jesus died for not not all sins he did do that but he died for your sins right. he died for my sins and, and that's what's important right yeah. um and so but going back to like on the political side the polit political philosophy side that individual becomes so very important and when we have this commodification i think we we that starts being erased and it's really easy then to for the individual to start losing their feeling of individuality that they even though it's still i would say it exists i would say that that is a a precondition um to a, a human being is that they're that they're an individual but they start feeling that. And I think that what you were getting at with David Foster Wallace, I love that the, you know, the, the video calls and stuff like, Oh man, I don't want to, I don't want to be this. I don't want to look like this. I don't want people to see this. And, and it's like th this kind of fear of confronting yourself as an individual. Now we can get back into the, into the philosophy yeah, or the if, theology. If we can stay in the part, philosophical but. for just a moment though, um, Peter, and I, and I think maybe you can unpack this a little bit. You don't have to be a Christian to get to like this Western notion of the importance of the individual. Um, we were talking after recording the other day, uh, Peter and I, or we weren't even recording, we were just talking about doing some series on the philosophers, and, and maybe we'll have to do that down the road. Maybe if you could uh, unpack a little bit like an Immanuel Kant, an autonomy, and that you should never use a person as big in Kant. Um, just in Western philosophical thought, not all the founding fathers were um, Christians, right? Many were deists. Um, you look at the French Revolution, you look at early capitalism, and even like an Adam Smith 
um, there's a real big concern with losing ourselves in corporations, right? Adam Smith sees kind of free people in a free market interacting freely. Um, the French Revolution wants to break up the guilds for reasons like this. But maybe just if you could ground a little bit, um, and I'm completely putting you on the spot, so I apologize, but I know this is stuff you've thought about. Um, you know, just from a non-Christian perspective, too, how do we get in the West through philosophy and through political science to this emphasis on the individual? Why is this seen as so important? Yeah, well, and it's not always, right? I mean, when you look at, when you look at um, you know, the utilitarians, for instance, I think the individual, sure. at least if you follow the principle, it completely is the individual the is vitiated. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, and they work to, to fight against that and say, well, no, we, we're going to maybe create like a, a foundational principle that, that, that the utilitarian principle doesn't touch or things, right. you know, all but even, ways even like a mill in that regard though, when you get him on Liberty and free speech, right. He'll be pretty good. on a- Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, and that's where it comes back. And so even the, yeah, that's what I guess I'm saying is even the utilitarians, I think have this kind of concept of the individual for Kant, I think is a great one because he basically grounds his entire ethics. The, the, that's probably actually too, too specific of a term for what Kant's doing because his whole philosophy is kind of rooted out of this. But the idea that um, this is going to be the principle upon which we have to act. And he even says we have to act as if we don't, we don't know. He says, we don't have this like firm um, logical foundation that we can make. We have to act as if, and Kant would say that it is as firm as it can be. He's not, he's, he's not saying it's a relativistic thing, not at all, but he's saying, He's he's reacting against this uh, this idea that we're going to find this this fundamental principle this this starting point and then build off of that and he's saying we get to this point and we can't we can't say there's absolutely this reason that you that you have to treat an individual as an individual as something you know significant but he says we're going to act as if that's the case and we're going to act as if then we're going that our action becomes a universal law right. that's applied to everyone and this and is why even someone like that, a Christopher Hitchens. Can, was pro-life, right? Yeah. I mean, there, someone who's a famous atheist can arrive at positions that take the individual right. in life very seriously. And when you, when you do that, all of a sudden the individual becomes extremely important because you're dealing with the individual and you're thinking in the back of your mind that how is this going to be, be universalized then? Can this be universalized? And so in an odd way you've, with, with Kant and others, you, but Kant's just a great example of it. You've got and this. And you can't get around him, yeah. Yeah, you absolutely not. You get this, uh, in the in seeking the universal you you're actually drawn to the individual and i mean mike i would say this goes right to our your idea that you harp on about vocation where you're dealing with the person in front of you right i mean like that i mean from a christian perspective that's what that's what our job is is to deal with that person in front of us and we're doing it from this you know kind of universal um, perspective of god's grace right how god's dealt with us and how he deals with all people we are now called to deal with people in that same way so yeah, I think we, going back to that idea, how do you look at a human being, you know, homo sapiens or the... the, the and Neanderthals. Yeah, you know, human, the, the uh, humans of the wisdom human or the wise, yeah. whatever. And uh, But then you can easily uh, think of the person as a human being who's the their role in the economy, right? And that's what you're trying to get mm-hmm. at. So I don't know what the Latin would be, homo, echo, whatever. I'm sure there's somebody has has put that in there. Uh. Um, that they have production value and then they have also um in a negative way they have a carbon footprint right they have this is how i this is how i look at a person almost um well you look at the person as a thing uh, and 
you use things. You don't use people, but you use things, or at least you shouldn't use people. And then really what, what makes that, how is that different in the Christian point of view? It's not just created in the image of God, but it's that, as you said before, Christ died for this person. So they have, the, they have a value that is beyond anything that we could come up with on our own. Um, because it's very difficult to look at a different at, at another person and say, why should I value that person? I mean, you have to do a lot of philosophy and try to convince yourself to say, okay, I don't want this person, um, like, well, Kant's saying, right? I, if if I'm going to treat this person in a certain way, would that be, do, do I ask myself the question, would that be universal, mm-hmm. right? Um, but it's it's a lot easier when God says, oh, I died for that person, right? And then... Um, I don't want to get into vocation uh, yet a little bit, but the idea there um, about using people, I think, is is really, I've been thinking about a lot. If I, let's, for, for example, look at my students, and I say, really, I want to be a college professor because I want to write books and I want to do research on whatever, you know, whatever science I'm into or whatever. And, um, but I need a paycheck, and so I ha- and I need to be at a research facility. At a, at a university, and so I'm here to teach these dumb freshmen because I have to. I'm, I'm using them. I may even be abusing them. I misuse them, maybe is not as strong as a word, but either way, I'm using these people, and they become, they become a stepping stone for my own whatever. And uh, I think that's part of the equation. Yeah, and, and part of what I have in mind, too, and I... I don't mean to stay so much more on the political side of things. And once again, not political like Republican, Democrat, but political science or or how we view humans. Part of what I'm thinking, too, is, you know, if you think of the old economic debates, you had kind of like Adam Smith capitalism, um, and then you had Marxism. And Marx's big thing was, right, what was capital? That was, it was labor, right? Um, the What the worker did, that was capital. And, uh, and so the reason the worker wants the means of production is so that the worker can produce without his labor being someone else's capital, right? Without someone else making money off the worker's labor. And I think where we're seeing a shift is, I mean, especially as more things I think will be automated um, to where people themselves are now the capital more than what, more than their labor, what they do. Um, and so and this is not, I'm not strictly talking capitalism here, so I'm not getting into economic systems as much. But this, um, this idea that um, you now are what you consume or what you produce. And so when you're on social media, you're the data you can provide. Um, in the workplace, you know, when, when my parents were coming out of high school, uh, you likely, you were going to go, you know, get a job at the auto plant or something related to that. And you were going to be there 30 years and retire. I mean, that's always what the auto work was, or 25 years if you were at the foundry. And you were going to be in one place. And we've seen a shift now that I don't know most people, I don't think most of our students come out expecting to be somewhere for 30 years. You land your job, and then you and this company have kind of this relationship, you're in it together. And, uh, and then you retire, right? This, um, the companies aren't as invested as they used to be, partly with the shift to special, like, especially the financial markets where companies get bought, someone's looking to make money in the short term off them, then they're sold. 
Um, the employee is as good as he can keep he or she can keep moving between places. They are kind of what they can produce in the short term. Um, I think we see as part of that um, this like system of debt, right? You're you never get to be attached to the past or really have the future. Um, really, what your past is is the debt you bring. You go into debt to go to school. Um, you go into debt to advance your career, so you can never re really come to terms with the with the past. And then the future, I mean, you look at the younger generations and the anxiety rates are just sky high. And I think anxiety rates in general in America, we see with just the, the tenor of the 2016 election, and I think 2020 is going to be that on steroids, this anxiety of, well, what is my future, whether that be in agriculture where you can't run the farm. I mean, Wisconsin dairy farms are just losing money left and right because of the milk prices right now. Um, but people really wrestling with what's my place, what's my value, who am I? Um, I guess if we can round out this first part, um, more philosophically, more politically, um, you know, what do we want? And, and, you know, you hear a lot of stuff now about like the death of democracy um, maybe this just doesn't work. Um, I think a shift toward, towards more of a consumer economy. Um, we're definitely a country that consumes more than we produce, right? The service sector has really grown. Um, people are just less attached to places and products. And, um, you know, I hate to, uh, you know, I, I hate to say, you know, terrorists make sense, right? So I'm not endorsing like a Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber. But if you've ever read like Ted Kaczynski's manifesto, he actually is about like the Industrial Revolution kind of separated people from the product of their hand. Um, you didn't feel this attachment to your job and what you're producing. And so I think we see culturally um, just people are, are more and more, they're, they're less grounded. Um, they're less attached to things. We see this with the growth of nuns religiously, N-O-N-E-S, they're less attached to institutions. Um, you're less attached to, there might be rising nationalism, but I would say we're probably less attached to nations than we've been in the past. The internet does this, right? We're more connected than ever before. Um, so, you know, where does a human being ground themselves in that? Where does a human being see their value when they don't really know where they fit or what tomorrow holds? And I think increasingly, and this is with shifting curriculum too, they have less attachment to history or, or to the institutions of their, their setting. Um, am I making any sense here? And Peter, I, I, I think maybe from a more historical, philosophical, political science viewpoint, I mean, where, how, how should people find their, their place or meaning or value here? And we'll take it to Christianity in a little bit, but do you understand the, the crisis mm -hmm. I think we're kind of getting Yeah, let at? me, you've, you've touched on this a couple of times, but I think it's, it would be a tangent worth with just going down a little bit farther is um, the idea of what we've done with education um, and how we've, I think it's just, it becomes really kind of clear, I think, what you're trying to get at when we talk about the commodification, commodification. And this is a of, big point I want to get to is how education yeah, plays of, in, yeah. Of, of students. And so we say, what are we going to do? And so in southeastern Wisconsin here, we have, or maybe we don't have this uh, uh, Foxconn facility, who knows. But <laughs> the, what, regardless of what's happening there, schools in that area have already, there are plenty of schools that have started saying like, oh, we need to, we need to prepare our students for this, you know, for the, the, 
labor force of, of tomorrow, of, you know, the next 10 years or whatever. And so they're starting to say, okay, what, what do we need to do a lot more STEM or STEAM or whatever acronym you want to use for basically, you know, um, technical jobs. And, uh, and that's fine and great. I, don't have a, I, don't, I really don't have a problem with this. I, I actually love the, the whole, a lot of the whole STEM and STEAM stuff. Right. That's, I mean, I've done a fair amount of that myself. And I'm in com- my job right now, the way I make money is with computers. So that's all fine and good. But what ends up happening then is that the grounding of education itself, which is something that we used to talk about in the context of the liberal arts, and again, liberal not in terms of liberal or conservative, but liberal as in freeing, as those, that, those arts, those techne that free us. And we've talked about this a number of times on the podcast, so it shouldn't, if you're a long-time listener, this shouldn't be anything new. But that, the, re- the reason that the liberal arts were kind of at the center of education, um, in the past at least, was because we, we, we understood this as, uh, as a, as a you know, culture, you could say at least in the West, but I would right. say it's just broader. We, we understood that this, these are important things to help um, fill out the person to, to help them become right. the most that it they can be. It wasn't primarily for the workforce. No. And even these, it was for the these early impedi for public education, oftentimes, even when it came from the working class or through labor or through the poor calling for it, it was, as you've, as you've said, to train people to be free citizens, mm-hmm. um, not just to, to, to go be able to, to build buggies. Yeah, yeah. No, and that's the, so the idea of, I mean, school comes from the Greek word for leisure. It was generally the wealthier that could go to school. So this is what they would be going for. We don't see it that way anymore. And, and I think it's, it's helpful to kind of remind ourselves where this came from and understand what the, you know, school in general, but the university in particular was designed to do. And that was to, to free the person, um, free, to free their mind from, from the confines of, um, you could say parochialism in a, in a very kind of broad sense. Um, and when we start focusing on what are the jobs they're going to get? How do we prepare them for the jobs? This is all good stuff. But when that starts supplanting, how do we prepare the individual to live life, you know, in a, so that they can flourish as a human individual, as a being, as a, as a human being, um, then we end up where we're, we, we commodify them. And then the, the, the next logical step is what I think we see happening at colleges where we're, we're battling out for, for students, especially at smaller um, uh, schools. Traditionally liberal arts. Yeah, yeah and, the, and so then how do you battle for students? You say, hey, we've got this great program that, you know, that will get you here and this great program that will get you there. And those are all fine and good. There's, we, I mean, we want people to be productive members of society. I think that that's part of that's – a, that's a big reason why people historically have gone to colleges and universities because they want to you know, enter the workforce at a place you – know, that's higher than the other ones. Right. Could. I mean, upward mobility was tied to you right. know being the middle class family that could send the first generation to college. Was but what do we? But what do we lose when that becomes our focus, or maybe the telos the, even? The yeah, angle. or even yeah, the telos. Um, so the end, the 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 object that we're aiming for, um, or maybe the only thing. I mean, maybe we just say, well, we're not going to worry at all about you know educating the whole individual. Um, we're going to worry about. This particular, you know, skill that we're going to treat, train them very well to do, and they're going to be amazing at this skill, which is can be a great thing for society. But is it great for the individual? Is it great for the individual when they go through college, go through you know a four year program, and they have never read any Shakespeare? Because I know Wade yeah. would be, you know, and is that, indi- if you is that individual <laughs> equipped for when the market changes in ten or fifteen years? 
and then thus right. their role changes to be a free thinking citizen. Right. No, and I would actually argue, so we can actually make the commodification argument in this way and say, no, the, the, the liberal arts education actually prepares one very well for a whole variety of things it, yep. because it trains them to, to train themselves. It trains them to become lifelong learners. And if they, if you're a lifelong learner, you can then do it. But I'm actually, I mean, like even beyond that argument, because that really is a commodification argument itself. Right. I think just asking what is the purpose of education? And that has changed because of how we've commodified people. So that's that's my tangent that I wanted to kind of go and on. And I don't think it's a tangent. It's kind of getting at where I would hope we, I hoped we would go a little bit of, um, and I'll get to one of my fears with this commodification is uh, when you have a lot of people who have been trained that way and not trained to think for themselves, when things drastically change from what they've been narrowly prepared for, um, I would I would worry that they're perhaps the most prone people of all to quickly hand their power away, um, to look to a big solution to whatever they view the challenges to be, um, and and to, as we kind of mentioned at the beginning, to break into groups and get this kind of tribal mentality of, well, it's us from them if I'm going to get my piece of the, of the pie. And this view of my survival, an anxious people is never a, seldom makes good decisions. Um, and uh, if we're not equipped, if we've been commodified and we're not equipped to deal with the anxieties of a changing world, um, I get real nervous about the us versus them. Um, you know, you kind of look at the rise of mercantilism in the West back in the day and the, this view that there's only so much wealth in the world to be had, and so we all better get our peace now, which was the... Um, I mean, this was the reason for colonialism, right? We all have to get our peace now. And so the, the things we were willing to do to other people, how we were willing to view other people, um, rank people by value along ethnic lines or racial lines or class lines, um, in many ways, right, education originally was stressed in the West to combat that, um, to bring us out of that way of thinking so that we would be um, equipped to engage in dialogue and move into a future um, in a thoughtful manner. And I think, uh, you know, I, this is, in, in this reproduction versus procreation just brings it out to me more. Um, you know, I get really nervous about where that could potentially, uh, could potentially head. But I've said a lot. Mike, you got anything? Um, maybe just to back up a little bit, I, I think in every stage of life, we do have this, this little things that aren't alarming by themselves, but you kind of, you know, you twinge a little bit when you think about that. Um, uh, I think children are thought of as accessories for a lot of people, right? Or just an investment. Or an, yeah, you know, it, yeah, just that term investing in the future. Um, children are our future. They're you know, they're the greatest investment. All of Not those are, yeah, <laughs> all of those are economic terms, right? Those are all economic. The way we're talking about it is reproduction rather than procreation. Um, and you, you mentioned that maybe someday that a, you know, someone would sue their parents for giving birth. That actually happened, I think. I, a guy in oh, India tried yeah, to sue, yeah, but it was mostly it. like. Not that he was saying there's something wrong with him, but just that kind of he didn't want to be born. Right. Which, which every kid has said at some point. <laughs> so it, um, you know, it, the the legal system, that's great. I mean, you can find anything. There's, yeah. There's always so, an example. There's always an example there. Um, I, th 
even when we get into and our, our students are taught to market themselves and they have to. You ha right? right. You and I don't have to. I'm not trying to you say have to. no one should try to be employable. Right. Um, but it is something like, you know, here I gotta Yeah, not I everyone can be a college professor. So I gotta brag about I gotta brag about myself on this piece of paper and I gotta I gotta make myself look good. Um, and I'm, I'm probably not going to put in my failures on that resume. I'm going to make, you know, I'm going to highlight what I do that is good and make it sound really, really great. And that's, you're selling yourself. I mean, you're, you have made yourself a commodity and, and that's, that's a hard thing to, that's a hard thing to deal with, isn't it? Because just like you had mentioned before with uh, Wallace that just, you know, they put this resume and I can imagine a lot of these kids put their resume, their first resume forward, and they're like, that's the best I am. <laughs> and I was lying on top of it, yeah. you know, and you could see. And then they're going to get the question, what is your, what is yeah. your biggest weakness? Yeah. And then you just, I mean, you My could. biggest weakness is I'm so strong. <laughs> <laughs> but you no, could very. It's I, always, I care too much. Yeah. I, I could very much see somebody putting this together that they think is a little bit of a farce this is the best they got and it's not good enough. You're just a few steps away from why, why am I even bothering? Why do I bother to get up and go to work? Why do I even bother to, uh, to even exist? Right. If everything is down to just my ability to market myself, it is dangerous. And I, I think this is where the economic side of it too comes in. And I, I don't want to belabor debt, but what is it? The average American is one paycheck away from homelessness, they say, or $400 in savings. And so when you, when you have been commodified and then you don't, as Peter said, you know, the idea of school was somewhat a luxury university, right? Is the idea of universe or universals that you're able to step back and consider bigger things. If we haven't equipped people to see their value um, as a human being, and to uh, and to be able to step back and think, um, if you're living in a constant panic, right, am I going to get the job my resume is for? What is my future going to hold? You inevitably become disconnected um, from your past and from uh, really being able to meaningfully consider your future, but also disconnected from other people. You now live in competition, Um if I right, if I don't get that job, someone else does. And it's somebody else's fault, i.e., immigrants, that I don't have a job. Right. right? It's, it, it's very easy, logical, illogical, but a logical step. Right. And so there's this disconnection that comes. Um, and just to get back to the anxiety, this anxiety or perplexity that kind of um, hangs over me, I'm never in a situation to um, to just be and stop and think. And and so if we think of our own day too, we're at a time when, I mean, change is just unparalleled. I was listening to um, Thomas Friedman the other day, New York Times columnist, and he was talking about the importance of the year 2007, and no one thinks 2007 matters because 2008 was the big economic downturn. 2007 was some, was like the iPhone, Facebook is launched, <clears throat> all of these things that happened in 2007. And a lot of these things too have been wonderful tools, but we're probably less equipped to really think deeply and meaningfully than we've ever been before. And to go back to Wallace, this, the constant screens in our life, 
um, whether or not we realize it, I think, um, give us a completely different sense of reality as well, right? Everything is an image um, or a sound bite. And, uh, and so my interactions with my neighbors are seen through that as well. Um, my neighbor is the person who agrees or disagrees with me on Twitter. My neighbor is the person whose family seems artificially happy on Facebook and that you can almost always predict when a divorce is coming on Facebook, like just because like it's when their marriage never seemed happier. Um, and then like a month after is all the memes about, you know, I'm strong. I have to live me, um, you know, Instagram, there's a reason that there's filters. And I think that goes back to the Wallace thing. But, um, and, and, you know, we see this in the classroom now where teachers are in, encouraged in some classrooms to be using social media during class, um, the, uh, and I mean, it, it's built somewhat into our DNA as Americans or as the West, uh, um, Dave Zoll has a great new book out, Seculosity, and one of the quotes he has in the front, I think it was from T.S. Eliot, it might be from someone else, but it says, uh, the most American form of literature is the to-do list. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so, yeah, I... I just, I see it in students, I see it in interactions with others, I see it in my own life. Um, I do get, and Mike, you mentioned hyper-individualism, and I kind of cut it off because I think that's a good point and that's somewhere to go eventually for it. But ironically, I almost find myself in our day and age where we might say, oh, everybody's so individualistic thinking, actually maybe what we need is more individual now, maybe then in the past, um, everybody's part of an identity group or a voting block or how many Instagram followers they have, or if they're in a growing field or if they're in the rust belt or on one of the coasts. Well, I just okay. wonder if a hyper individualism has led to this because you realize, Oh, I'm all alone and I'm not as great as I thought I was. Right. And so you, maybe you want to be a victim, right? I, or maybe you want to be whatever, whatever, is going to give you that self-justification, which we tied to trying to find value for yourself. Well, and that yeah. gets to a big thing that I think, and it comes out in all of Wallace's works, but especially in Infinite Jest, um, is he sees kind of a driving problem in America and in the West as loneliness. And I think that that's another thing that's come out of this commodification is... You know, if you're reproduction and we're products, rather than being creatures of God, if the emphasis on, is on creation, we're automatically all drawn together, right? It's individual value, but we're immediately all drawn together. We are humanity. I read a really good book recently called Team Human, right? Um, and the back cover stamped on it is Find the Others. And it kind of talks about when you go out for a walk or you're at the airport and you see that person that's not on their phone, Find the others, right? <laughs> um, here's someone who's maybe free. And I do think um, maybe a hyper-individualism led to this, but we've... Part of the equation. Right, yeah. and we've maybe lost ourselves, though, now and others as individuals, and our ability to be meaningful community because of that, if that makes sense. An artificial community instead of a natural one that came holistically or organically, however you Right, and I think this gets back to Peter and, and Kant, um, that uh, 
my neighbor now becomes to capital to me, right? What I, what can I put my neighbor to use for? What is my child going to do that's going, right? It's an investment. Um, an investment is just a word we use for everything now. Mm-hmm. Um, but this, you know, one of the kind of the, one of the pillars of Western liberal democracy is uh, free association. And with the commodification of the individual, to what extent do we even have free association anymore? I can choose my Facebook friends. I can choose who I follow on Twitter. But are we really, in a, to speak philosophically, I guess, are we really freely associating? I, so much of what we read now is filtered down through companies that have an interest in I mean, Facebook feeds you what it wants you to see. Twitter feeds you. Amazon, oh, you're shopping for this? You probably want this. Now you don't have to be at Walmart and be concerned that that shopping cart's in the way or that lady's kid's crying. You know, um, to what extent are we able to to step out and and see and engage meaningfully um, because because of our uncomfortability with our own value or the values of those around? I'll stop. I don't know if I'm making sense, but... You look pensive, Peter. You got something you're playing with your mustache. Well, the um, you, you mentioned like we're our communities are being filtered by you know like Facebook, for instance, and so they they show you what they want you to see, but they show you what they think you want to see, right. and generally they're pretty good at it, mm-hmm. right? I mean, but the but one of the problems that we have with that, and I think that this is a great example of like how we're commodified because they don't know they don't know us as individuals, although maybe they know a lot of individual details about or details about the individual, but they don't know us as individuals and they don't treat us in that way. They Can treat I us interrupt as one that reminds me of the King of Queens episode when uh, was it Spencer? This is back when the highest technology was TiVo. And you know, could like tell what shows that he was watching uh-huh. or whatever. Yeah. And he's like, "Ah, TiVo thinks I'm gay." <laughs> anyway, go ahead. Yeah, no, that's what what they're doing though is they have to take you as a collective. They have to take you as a group group, and they yeah. and they start you know treating you in that way. And they generally are pretty good at it. But one of the downsides to that that I mean, it's not the intention. I don't think of Facebook or play or or you know social media sites like that. But one of the downsides is that then you only see that thing. You only, mm-hmm. you, you you become siloed because there's so much out there that we could never, you know, process at all. Um, so we always are filtering. But our natural filter when we live, you know, in a, in a, um, a pre-automotive society, let's say. So we're, you know, kind of, a lot of people are going to live fairly close. They're going to stay pretty close to where they were born in, in a general sense. The, and that would be an episode two, the automobile. Yeah. <laughs> as much as it pains me as a Detroiter, to, I mean, that did shift things too. It yeah. Did, yeah, it did. Well, and just becoming mobile like that, you could say the uh, the train did it first, but the um, the the way that all of a sudden you kind of, you're, you're breaking out. But previously, you had a really small um, cultural exposure. And you didn't get to choose group. a lot of it. Right, yeah. but you didn't get to choose it, which meant that, in a way, you probably got more variety because if you're in a town of you know even moderate size, you're going to have differing opinions and things. You go to Facebook, and you have millions and billions of people, but what do you get? You get filtered to you what... You know yeah. what you're kind of, and then the one with. that does disagree with you, you go nuts because <laughs> yeah, you're not used to seeing. Maybe it. maybe Facebook drops those in occasionally just to keep things interesting. And I think we see this even with the growth and or how our democracy has shifted or grown. Um, even now, you'll hear about well, the Republicans and the Democrats have to do this to appeal to this group, or they're going to die off if they don't get that group. <clears throat> and uh, instead of it being you know what's best for people. Um, it becomes entirely platform-driven and, um, oh, what do you call that, focus-grouped, mm-hmm. right? And 
and this too is is a commodifying. It's not. It's no longer a uh, vocational, right? What's best for my neighbor? How do I serve as mask of God? Um, but it, I, I mean, it gets to not only do we become commodities, but it it becomes a consumer and consumerism in which we are then inherently commodifying others. Yeah, I think the church has seen that way too. You know, I how do I appeal to somebody, and that's very problematic in the church because it assumes a assumes a free will and right. spiritual But we're going to build on the edge of town where the upwardly mobile, right. largely white, mm-hmm. right. um, you know, young couples are moving. Yeah, the, the, the turn it, you know, from the main line, conservative main line, so that would be, you know, Missouri Synod and Wisconsin Synod Lutherans, uh, the so-called movers and shakers and, and uh, ones who weren't stuck in the mud tended to end up being like very white, very conservative, very niche kind of actually quite closed off but that's a, that's maybe a, a topic for a different day but when you yeah start doing things as in a market sense that the worshipers are clients or customers in this business there are some serious and then you train your church that, members to be products too right you're mm-hmm. going to be a goodwells or missouri mm-hmm. kid right this is what a goodwells or missouri person looks like when we turn you out so that you'll then be faithful to the institution. Yeah, or you just, I mean, even for a parishioner sitting in the pew, like you're going to be a good quote-unquote missionary, right? Like right. you you have your mission field, go, you know, go do it. And we, we have a great business to, model. Yeah. <laughs> you know, take a look at Mormons, but it's, it's you're still, yeah. No, well, yeah, I mean, in terms of growing the church, yeah, you can you can do a lot, but what are you what are you missing, right? I mean, it's the whole the whole thing. So we've ta- we haven't talked a lot about the church, and we're uh, you know got to wrap up here. So I don't think we should. But get maybe too like far we take five it, minutes to the church, and yeah. But, and this is oh go ahead. Peter. Well, no, and I was gonna say so because like in that way, I mean, when we look at it from the church, if we're commodif- we're if we're commodifying our parishioners, what are we what are what are we missing? Whether it's just that we're counting numbers or we're telling them, you know, like your mission field begins here, go and do that. That's what we're doing. We're missing we're missing we're, we're missing the um, uh, confession and absolution, right? That that's why they're coming here. They're coming here broken, and that's why they come to church and they come to hear that they are they're forgiven, that they are whole again. And they have value. And yeah. And now, will they go and do mission work? Absolutely. But that's not why they're coming to church so that you can tell them to go out and do that. And they're not going to do mission work to go find the product and bring it back to increase the numbers, the bottom line. Unless you tell them that that's what they're there to do, in which case you're missing the whole point of, you know, what what, my neighbor's value now becomes how likely are they to come join my church. And like we said, uh, as always, when you actually have that sense of freedom, you actually end up being more productive. Right. And so a thoughtful Christian out there who's really has been treated as a human being redeemed by Christ crucified is probably more apt to build a relationship. Maybe it takes more time. Maybe they don't have as many notches on the belt as somebody who goes out and sprays Jesus everywhere. Um, but yeah, but uh, it's, it's authentic. It's real. And I'm not quite sure that we've had a long history in America of people that have been very well-rounded and thoughtful in maybe the recent decades, coupled with that desire for evangelism, right? It's it's always kind of like a split. You got the people that are theology nerds, and then you have the people that love Jesus and other people. And, and those two don't seem to have mixed very often. And so I, I can imagine a listener saying right now, well, this is the one thing needful, you know, uh, what's, you know, you try to get as many people as, as you can. We've heard that from previous generations ad nauseum. Well, 
you know, that those dying churches, maybe they never really were as thoughtful and as well-rounded as maybe we thought they were. Um, let's not just say there's two choices. There's the, the old way that, didn't, that was thoughtful and didn't care about uh, other people, and then there's a new way that cares about people. Well, I don't, I'm not sure that that's, it's that easy of a dichotomy. Well, and I, I see that as somewhat the role, hopefully, of what our college can be doing, but the role of the church, too, because I think, Mike, I agree. And you kind of get that caricature already in some where people start talking about, oh, so-and-so is the book-type pastor. He'll be in his office studying. Oh, and then so-and-so is the kind who will be out talking to people because he has a heart for people. It always amazes me how many hearts some people have. Um, but I think what we need more than anything is thoughtful Christians who are in books and have something meaningful to give people. And I think uh, reading a lot of Bonhoeffer lately, too, Bonhoeffer's good on this, Mylander brings it out in his book as well, is that whoever you engage with is a someone, right? In Christ, they are a someone. Even the unbeliever has been taken up into Christ in the sense that we believe in a universal atonement. On the cross, Christ took that person up in himself and gives that person meaning and value. And we talked about the image of God with Adam Martin, and that's still one of my favorite episodes. And I think what Adam did, which is very helpful, is to root that even that original image of God was gift, right? This was God's gift to humanity, that Adam and Eve were now images of God on earth. And I think when we have a redemption-focused value in which we see people that we recognize that someone is a someone, there is somebody in Christ, no matter their human capacities, um, whether they're extremely smart or not so gifted academically, um, whether they're able to produce a lot in the new economy or not, we are able to go to someone and say, you know, I know you're anxious, or I know you maybe wonder what's your place in the world, um, but you are a someone. You are a someone in Christ. He has taken you up into himself. Um, you were bought, right? You are a commodity insofar as you were bought at the price of his own blood. And so now you, you have value. Um, you have value to live and move and have your being in him. And so I, I, I'll admit I kind of framed this whole episode to go where I wanted to go. But I think this is something that's very important for the church in our day in an age where people are anxious, they wonder who they are, what's their value, are they just there to market themselves, are they just capital, um, for the church to be able to say, whoa, 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 let's hold up a minute. There's no us, them. Um, yes, you have to be employable, right? You want to get a job, that's good. Um, but none of that stuff's going to make you more valuable or more you or more human, um, your value, your humanity, your you-ness, um, and Peter, you started to go there before, is caught up in Christ. You stand before God as one for whom Christ died. And so when we as church then educate people, um, I think we want to be educating people to be free thinkers. We want to educate people to be free. Um, we don't want to just produce product. It's not, are you a good Wisconsin or, or Missouri Synod Lutheran? It's you have value before God. We want you to think. We want you to be able to wrestle with God like Jacob. We want you to be able to sit down with the scriptures and have to think through these things. We want you to be able to step back from the anxiety of every day and worrying about 20 years ago. And although you're tempted to be disconnected from the past because who has time to be worried about that, we want you to recognize that your you is rooted in the past. 
and an event that happened during Holy Week on Calvary and in an empty tomb, a Christ who died for um, our forgiveness, who rose for our justification, that that is your your newness. And in a culture that's losing its its um, past and is mortgaging its future, <clears throat> right? It just we're betting against the future again and again and again, and we could get into financial markets another time. But when you feel like life is constantly a gamble, I'm putting this money towards college. Will it pay off down the road? We're training the children because they're the future. What you know? Are they going to take care of us when we're in the home? If there's even homes left, then who knows? Maybe they're just putting us down in mass. They put us against the wall. <laughs> but uh, to be able to step back and say, you know what? Of all people, Christians think there should be a scola. There should be thinking as luxury. There should be contemplating of universals. There should be time to see your neighbor. Go to the coffee house. Go to the cup. The pub. Um, see another person and see a person. And then you know what? After you know them, ask them what they do. Um, but see them as, as what they are because they are, they are something to Christ. And I think that helps free us from this commodification of the individual that, Mike, I think you brought up very well, that the church can fall into as well. Um, and no one rings their hands about the future as well as the church. I mean, I don't know how many times I've heard presentations on the church is going to die if. Yeah, the, the one institution that shouldn't be worried about it at all, yeah. right? <laughs> you know, literally to hell with that thinking. Our future is Christ. Our person is Christ. Our value is Christ. Um, and that's not something for us to sell. Christ has already done the buying. That's just something for us to live. We are creatures of God, even our imperfection, whatever your eye color, whether it's what your parents wanted or not, Maybe they wanted a daughter, but you were the boy, or they wanted a son, but you were the daughter. Um, all that is settled, and now I can be, and I can I can be educated to be. I can raise my children, hopefully, to be, and maybe that means there's not going to be truck driving jobs in 20 years, but whether I'm a truck driver or not, I can be. I can be in Christ. I can be with others. Uh, it's The others aren't just there to get me. The others are put there with me by God to be part of something bigger than myself. Um, and really, you know, we're, we're guaranteed eventually a place with 100% employment. Um, and that's employment and the enjoyment of heaven. And really, you know, the best parts of this life are a foretaste of that. And so that's <clears throat> kind of where I wanted to go with that. And I apologize for bringing you along on a trip that I didn't explain very well where I wanted to go, gentlemen. But I will let you close it out with any thoughts you have. Well, I, Wayne Knight, we, not I know counsel is not always the right word, but students that come in about maybe academic questions or uh, general life questions, and we sense there's a little bit of anxiety, and rightfully so. There's a lot of money being put into this college education of theirs, and I think more and more uh, when we think about, okay, this everything depends on these four years, and, and we lament the fact that they're not enjoying their college years as we <laughs> had. And the only way to do that is to be at peace with, okay, the future is going to be okay. And when you look at how we talk about our lives, and here's my five-year plan, here's my 10-year plan, here's how I'm going to market myself, everything depends on this. If you want to this. make the angels laugh, tell them what you're doing tomorrow. Everything, everything uh, depends on this. And then we take God's words and we cherry-pick God's words and we put that into our own narrative. So God's got a plan for me, like all that kind of stuff. Uh. And instead, that's not how God really talks about 
things. He already talks about, um, you know, good deeds in advance for, uh, that I have prepared in advance for you, always towards the neighbor, right? Good deeds for somebody else that I have prepared in advance for you. And I, I like the way Jesus speaks to his disciples. He's almost sarcastic. I do uh, too. I uh, like the way Jesus speaks. <laughs> I, I also do. Uh, and more just because, uh, because he's true God, Peter. But um, there's sometimes where he comes off as sarcastic as in, um, you know, don't, don't you understand how much I've invested in all of this? I mean, do you really think that, you really think that I didn't think about this college degree thing? Like before the beginning of the world, I knew you and I loved you. And then I, for crying out loud, I became man for you. <laughs> like the infinite and the finite, you idiot. And then I lived and I died and I rose and I'm preparing heaven for you and ruling all things for you. Do you really think but that I just... But did you think just, about my possible career yeah, change at the really age think of 40? Like, oh my goodness, like this was, this, this just throws, um, this throws a monkey wrench into everything. But what is, what's your I favorite Instagram it, filter, Jesus? Yeah, I didn't, I did not see that one coming. Oh boy, it must all be ruined for, you know, whoever. I just, will you calm down a little bit, you know, and that, and I think that's the way the anxiety goes away a little bit and then you're actually then free to live and it turns out usually not always but it turns out you actually end up being more productive and nicer and maybe even more employable and if nothing else it frees us to let the bird fly uh, every evening when the sun goes down get my party and i begin to cry i don't care what the people are thinking i'm not drunk I'm just a tank. I set them up another round. I set them up another round. I set them up another round. One more round won't get me down.